I'd really encourage you to have Psalm 104 out open in front of you. Um, even if you don't normally uh, have a Bible in front of you when you listen to the sermon, I'd encourage you to do so today. Um, we're going to do something slightly different than what we would normally do. I've not got one key idea to present to you. What I want to do in preaching is to work through this psalm together and meditate on this psalm that we've read. Um, the reason I've brought us to this psalm is because today is our uh, Harvest Thanksgiving services. Uh, we're giving thanks to God for his goodness to us, his provision of all our material needs. Uh, and that is the, the great theme of this psalm, 104. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work through verse by verse. Uh, we're going to meditate on the imagery uh, that is presented to us in this psalm. And we're going to be led to praise the Lord. In fact, that's how the psalm starts. Verse 1, praise the Lord, O my soul. And I'd invite you to say that together with me. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's the, the aim of this psalm. Uh, not to teach us some certain thing about, about how the world was made. Not to uh, um, uh, remind us of some doctrine uh, that, uh, that, that might be useful for, for the way we live. Uh, but simply, this one truth, to stir us up to praise our Lord and our God. And I hope that as we work through this psalm together, as we consider carefully each of the images, that will be the way you are led and inspired and moved in your heart. For you to see the goodness of God and to praise him. To give him thanks, to recognize that all you have, indeed every good gift that you enjoy, comes from his hand. And so you give him praise. It's the way the psalm starts and the way it ends. I would just remind you as we work through, this is a, this is a psalm. This is not a, um, a passage of Paul's theology, for example. Uh, it's not written in very uh, literal form. Uh, there are images and illustrations used in, in this. It's a song, basically. It's like trying to, to read it and, and to, to benefit from it. It's a bit like uh, singing, a, singing a hymn uh, or singing a song that we sing together. Uh, sometimes the, the imagery is uh, meant to move us and to, to inspire our thoughts and our imagination rather than simply inform our intellect. And so that's part of what we're going to do as we work through. Oh Lord, my God, you are very great, the psalmist says. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Now that's an interesting place to start in a psalm where the psalmist is going to look at all the wonderful things in creation and see how they remind him of God. You know from Romans chapter 1, for example, that the whole of creation uh, is evidence of God's divine power and uh, his, his eternal power and his divine nature. But although we can see God's presence in creation, Creation doesn't lead us to know God. And actually, even before the psalmist is considering the wonderful gifts of creation, he's saying, actually, I already, I already know this God. Oh Lord, he uses the, the name of God, the name given to, to Israel. Oh Lord, my God, you are very great. Yes, we can look at creation around us and we can see God's goodness in it. But it's not always creation that convinces an unbeliever of God's presence even. And it's certainly not creation that leads a person to salvation and to know a relationship with his God. And so even before the psalmist considers the creation and the goodness of it, he, he already knows that and he expresses that relationship first. Oh Lord, my God. What is one thing I could say about God? You are very great. You are very great. Surely that is the, that is the first thing we ought to be saying about God. Interestingly, when we were going through the, the children's catechism with the children, uh, what is God like? God is great. 
God is good, God is holy, God is all-powerful, and God is love. Many things you can say, but to, to, to call him great is perhaps the most appropriate starting point. And then he says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. Actually, the psalmist is going to show us how creation, in a sense, is clothed with splendor and majesty. The evolutionary atheist looks at the splendor and majesty of creation and says, this beauty that is inherent is mere functionality. The psalmist expects to see splendor and majesty in creation because he knows already that God himself is clothed in splendor and majesty. Beauty cannot be dismissed as mere functionality, just just an accident of evolutionary biology. Beauty is given because the one who created the world is himself beautiful. And so if he is good, if he is beautiful, we can expect to see a reflection of that in the creation as we look at it and study it. Why is it that fish that, that swim at the darkest depths of the ocean, where no light can, can penetrate, are full of patterns and intricacies and beauty that are only seen when a submarine dives down with a man-made torch and shines it on? Why would beauty be in such a place that has no function? Only because the God who created those fish, those animals, is himself beauty. And he rejoices in order and beauty and goodness. And he's built it into the world that he has made. That's what the psalmist is uh, reminding himself of even as he starts. Verse 2. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. Remember we're reading a psalm here. Don't go literal. God actually doesn't have a body that he can wrap himself with. God is spirit. And so it's not that he's literally taking light and, and wrapping it around his arms and keeping himself warm at, at night. No, this is a, a, an, an image. It's intended to help us consider what God is really like. And so what is the purpose of then the psalmist describing God as wrapping himself in light? Uh, well, he's drawing on all of the, the biblical imagery that is often attached to light. In fact, the one thing I should say at this point is the whole psalm follows closely the chapter of Genesis chapter 1, uh, God creating the world. Uh, you can trace out the different days of that first creation week in this psalm. And here right at the beginning, he, he brings in this idea of light. Of course, that's what God did on the first day. He said, let there be light. And he separated light from darkness. But as well as light in the Bible being a, a physical thing, the way that we see, light is also equated with righteousness, that which is good and holy. And so to describe God as being clothed with light is to say God is himself righteous. God is himself good. Darkness becomes a symbol for wickedness and light is a symbol for, for God's goodness or righteousness. And think of the, the imagery that's uh, included here. Imagine what it would be look, what it would look like if you could see this God who is wrapped in light. Uh, think of it just on the basis of, of the light that we do see. It comes from the sun. Do you know, yesterday when I was, I was, I was preparing, I had a go at looking at the sun. Okay. Y- you can't do it. And it's not just that you can't do it because it's too bright and you can't see any, uh, any dis- definition there. You can't do it because it hurts. There's so much light coming in. It, you literally can't put your eyes on the sun. I don't recommend you try it. It's a silly thing to do, really. But I thought, you know, in the interest of the uh, the sermon, I, I thought I'd better give it a go. To, to, to look at the sun, it hurts your eyes. You have to turn away. It's a, it's a, a reflex uh, reaction. And yet, that light that is coming from the sun is the only way that we can see. 
In a similar way, how do we know what is good in this world? How do we know what is a morally upright thing to do? How do we know what is worth worth living for? We know what goodness is because it, it streams, it comes from God himself. He, he is the source of goodness, just like the sun is the source of our light. But what would it be like if you could see the fullness of the goodness of God? Not just goodness of God reflected in creation, not just goodness of God bouncing off his people here on earth, but if you could gaze at the goodness of God directly, it would hurt. It would, it would burn your eyes, as it were. And so one in 1 Timothy in the New Testament, Paul describes God as being the God who, who lives in unapproachable light. You, you can't see him because of his goodness. Not because he is other, but because his goodness is so good that it, that it hurts our sinful and weak hearts and minds to dwell upon him and to consider him. Verse 3. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. If you know me and my family, you know we, we really love going camping. And uh, we've been camping ever since we've been married, me and Rachel. We take the children now. And there's this funny thing that happens when you go to campsites. Uh, because if you're, I mean, only if you're in a proper tent. I mean, if you're in a caravan, you you probably have a similar discussion but about caravans. But if you're in a tent, you walk down the campsite and you look at who's got the best pitched tent and who's got the nicest tent and who's got the biggest tent and, hey, we're doing pretty good because we've got one of these new blow-up ones, okay? So it's ginormous. It's twice the size of this platform. You can fit six people in in double beds and whatever. And uh, it, it's got a carpet, okay? It's got triple triple lined roof to keep the sun out. It's, it's wonderful. It's a fantastic tent and we love going camping and enjoying our tent. And we strut around the campsite, okay, because, you know, we're one of the big guys. We really know what's going on. We've been doing this several years. You know, we've we've got all the gear and uh, we know what it is to be real campers. We're, we're the people who, who need to be looked at, okay? We're the big guys. And the place we go camping uh, in North Wales, every night we, we walk up the hill nearby. It's right on the coast. And we leave the campsite and we walk up the hill. And you get to the top of the hill and you look back down towards the campsite. And our big, impressive, nice tent is now just a little speck. Uh, It's only uh, less than a mile away. And you can see it in the distance. There it is. And if you left a light on in the tent, you can see the tent glowing green. That's my tent. All the, all the pride and all the, uh, all, all the stature that I feel that I have walking around the campsite because my tent is bigger than the rest of them. There it is, just a, a little dot. Uh, in the distance. And then you look out and the place where we go, you see it's got sea nearly 180 degrees or 270 degrees. You know, you can look from that way and you look all the way around and you just see the horizon of the sea going all the way around. And the sun sets into the sea there. On a clear night, you can look over to see island and then you're reminded. I look out and there's my little tent in the distance. And and this, this is the tent of, of God. He, he stretches out the heavens as, as his tent. He's the big one. He's the one who demands people look at him and, and recognize him and see him. He's the one with power and authority. And his tent stretches out from that horizon all the way over uh, and all the way down to the other side. He fills the creation that he's made. And yet not only does he fill the creation, but he, he stretches out the heavens like a tent for him to dwell in, but then also he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. The Bible often calls the sky their waters because 
Well, of course, that's where the waters come from. You've got waters in the sea and you've got waters who, that rain down from the sky. And so God is, God is in his creation. Uh, the sky is like the, the roof of his tent. And yet he's outside of his creation. He, he puts the beams of his bedroom, his upstairs level, he sets them up on the waters up there. He's both contained within his creation, but he, he cannot be contained here. He's far bigger than that. He's, in fact, big is not a right word to describe God because he can't be measured. He doesn't have size or, or dimension or distance. It's not just God that God is bigger than the universe. God, God, God isn't measured in that way. He is immeasurable. He is infinite. And the psalmist begins to see that the greatness, the greatness of God. He is in his creation, but he is not part of his creation. He's outside of his creation still. Verse 3, he goes on, he makes the clouds his chariot and he rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, he makes flames of fire his servants. Can you control the wind? No, you can't control the wind. Maybe you can harness it if you build a windmill or something like that. You can't control it, you can't direct where it's going to go. Can you know where the wind will end up? You can sometimes have a good idea, but you know that as you're walking through a windy day, that the wind doesn't seem to just come from one direction. It's buffeting you from all around. The winds go to and fro, this way and that way and the other way. The winds are chaotic, uncontrollable. And yet it's God who makes those winds his servants. God doesn't see them as chaotic or uncontrollable. He directs them. They're, they're every path. They go in the exact way that he wants them to go. Flames of fire. Destructive, uncontrollable. All you can do is, is put them out once they get out of control. And even then, that's hard to do. Sometimes you just got to let them, let them eat their way through whatever it is that they're burning up. And yet the flames of fire are the servants of God. He's got total control over all of this creation that he's made. It's not, it's not that God has made the world, wound it up like a watch, and then stood back to let it tick. That is, that is the exact opposite of what the psalmist is trying to say. Some people uh, present that kind of idea about God. That he, that he put all the laws of gravity and physics into place. He, he set up the universe and now he's just stepping back and letting it work on its own way. And the psalmist, it, it, it would be alien to the psalmist. The psalmist is saying in every detail, in every detail that seems to us uncontrollable or just natural as it were. It's only there because God controls it and guides it. He is in his creation. He fills it, but he is not part of it. He controls it in the most precise way that you can imagine. Praise him. Praise him. Recognize him. Depend upon him. Verse 5, he sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. This is not a, a meditation about the earth now. This is a meditation about God himself. He is the one who has set the earth on its foundations. Picture yourself as that psalmist coming to terms with his own weakness in the world. His dependence upon forces outside of his control. Because those winds and those clouds and that sunshine that he's just described as uncontrollable and at times unpredictable are the very same forces that he depends upon in order to grow his food, in order to sustain his family. And he is weak in the world. And yet God is the one who put the world on its foundations. Man has power and grandeur. 
and strength. Don't you remember at the beginning of the pandemic when the Chinese built three or four hospitals in a week, all kitted out, fully... I don't even know how concrete can set that fast, you know? It was incredible. They put the hospitals on their foundations within a week. God put the earth on its foundations and it can never be moved. Verse 6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. There's a shift in the language here. Uh, You covered it. He's not talking about he, the God who has done these things. He's now addressing God directly and we'll come to the prayer in a moment. Uh, The prayer that I think is implicit in these verses. Uh, What are these verses referring to? Uh, there's a little bit of ambiguity, which I think is deliberate because of the, uh, the lyrical quality of the psalm. It could be, on the one hand, referring to the, the, the second day of creation, when God separates the, the waters above from, from the waters below, or perhaps the third day of creation, when he separates the waters from the land and creates the land of the earth. And that would fit with the pattern of the psalm, as I said earlier, the psalm is working through the days of creation. But also, it seems to me to to also be referencing the time of the flood. Because at creation, God moved the waters away. But here in verse 6, it's talking about God bringing the waters on. Well, God brought the waters on at the time of Noah and the flood, when when God decided to, to destroy the world and everyone and everything in it and start afresh, as it were. And... Uh, further, you've got a reference to, to the flood because of verse 9. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Of course, that was the promise of God when Noah and his family exited the ark. And so I think you've got this ambiguity, which I, th- I think is deliberate and can work uh, in, in either way. After all, the, the flood itself has references back to, to the days of creation. Um, and uh, and the, the psalmist is considering... That even in that catastrophic destruction, the time when God, you can almost imagine him stepping back and, and just throwing the waters over the creation in order for it to do its destructive work. The psalmist is saying that that's not how it happened. God brought the waters, but he wasn't just throwing them on and letting them do the work. He, he sent the waters. He knew where they were going to go. He covered it as with a garment. And then at God's rebuke, the waters fled. And they flowed over the mountains and, and down into the valleys to the place that you assigned for them. Even in this act of destruction and catastrophe, God was entirely in control of all that was going on. And then verse 9, he says, you set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. And I think this is the, the prayer of the psalmist in these verses. I think he's, I think he's, he's offering up this promise to God and saying, please God, don't forget that promise that you made. When you look through the Old Testament, you see a number of different times God judging cities, people. You see it at the flood, for example. Why did God send the flood? We saw the verse this morning. Because the heart of man was inclined towards evil, even from childhood. And so God, God, God sent the, the flood as destruction, as judgment upon the people. You see it happen again at times like Sodom and Gomorrah, as it would be another classic example. Now, why is it that God doesn't send judgment today? Why don't we see cities being burned down and fire raining down from heaven? Is it because that people have got better? That we've got better hearts? 
that we're not quite as evil as we once were. That's not the case. Our hearts haven't changed, and, and if anything, our hearts are more likely, even more inclined to sin than they once were. As sin over the years has done its work on, on taking grip of the whole of the human race. It's not because humanity is better that God has stopped sending the fire on cities. Is it because God has changed? Maybe he's become more patient. The very suggestion is anathema. God does not change. He never has changed. He's, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. The reason, I think, is that God has sent his judgment, actually. But not upon the cities. Upon one person. Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even for those who deserve the judgment of God, now there is mercy, not because of anything they've done, not because of that they are better, not because God has changed and decided, oh, I'm going to turn a blind eye to this, but because Jesus Christ has borne the full brunt of God's anger and his judgment. And so there is mercy and there is freedom for us in Christ. God is patient with us, allowing us time to turn to Christ before his final act of judgment comes. Verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. And the earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. In the next section, what once had been the instrument of destruction now becomes God's means of provision. The waters and springs that once were, were brought up to destroy life are now being used by God to feed life and to bring life into being. From the source of life, that one who is wrapped in light now sends life out, trickling down into the world. And don't you think it's wonderful that uh, the way God has designed the water system to work you know, on a very basic level, it, it, it's easy to understand. The rain comes down, the sun evaporates it, it goes back up to the clouds, and then it comes down again. But that's not the full story. And if you've ever been walking up in the Peak District or in the Lake District or in the hills, or uh, there'll be some here who've uh, been up to the Alps, I'm sure, you know that right at the top of the mountains, even on the sunniest, clearest day, you've got rivers trickling down. And those little rivers will, will run and run and run, even if you don't get rain for days, weeks. Well, where's the water coming from, from from those streams? God has designed it so that water springs up from the ground. And he springs up the springs, not, not at the bottom in the valleys, but he springs up the springs up at the top of the mountains. And so the springs shoot up at the top of the mountains and then they flow down. And as they flow down towards the sea, it feeds the birds and the animals and everyone who needs the water. What great wisdom of God. You can imagine the psalmist sitting upon his mountain and, and, and just considering the works of creation. Even this babbling stream next to me, isn't this a good gift of God? And isn't it providential that this stream springs up here so that it can water all this land rather than right down there near the coast? Isn't God good to his creation? Doesn't he provide for us? And who is he providing for here? It is the wild donkeys. Perhaps an epitome of a useless animal. What are donkeys for? Carrying burdens, carrying packages, carrying loads. But a wild donkey, who's going to put a load on a wild donkey? Nobody owns it. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's not going to respond to the bridle. So you've got this, this most useless animal, and yet God cares for it. He provides the springs, babbling up to, to quench the thirst of even 
the wild animal. Verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Here's a clever development in the thought that's just, that we've just been thinking about. Who feeds the animals? That's easy, even my little Mary knows that. God feeds the animals. Where do the birds get their food from? Well, God feeds them. You know, the, the trees and the, uh, the berries and the, the, the flowers and the plants and the insects, God provides them for the animals. It's easy to say God provides for the animals. Who provides for you? Who, if you've ever been to, uh, to, to the garden of a, um, someone who has a vegetable patch, uh, there's a, people in the church who've got pretty impressive vegetable patches. Who's, who's put them vegetables there? Isn't it the hard work of that individual who's been out all hours of the week, uh, digging holes and measuring distances and planting seeds and germinating seeds in their, uh, in their glass houses and so on? Isn't it man that, that produces his own food? Yes, God feeds the animals, but we feed ourselves, don't we? And the psalmist says, no, no. God makes grass grow for the cattle and he makes plants for man. Yes, man needs to cultivate them, but even if he cultivates them, it is God who is making them grow. It is God who is sending the sun and the rain to water these plants. God is providing the food, even for man, even though God himself has to, uh, even though man himself has to cultivate. And this teaches us, again, about our own relationship to God. I am dependent upon him for my life, for all that I am, for all that I have. And yes, there is a sense in which I cultivate some of the things that I have. And the same for you. Some of your money, some of your house, some of your garden, some of your family, some of your hobbies, some of your uh, health, some of your strength, some of your knowledge, some of your intellect is cultivated by you and nurtured and developed. But without God's gracious provision, you would have none of it. And if God took away the sunshine and the rain and your very breath, it would disappear in a moment. Praise the Lord. Recognize your place of humility in the face of him. God provides the food for man. But what kind of food is it that God provides? Verse 15, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. Yeah, the the animals are sustained. They get the grass. But for man... You get wine, tasty, beautiful wine that, that doesn't just taste nice, but, but gladdens my heart, changes my whole mood. You get oil to make your face shine, to clean yourself up with. And, of course, you get the bread which will sustain you. Do you know, the gift of, of God's food, I think, are, are some, of the, some of the most easy ways to remind yourself of God's goodness to you. Do you know, every day I... Uh, eat a big orange, a navel orange. I just call it a big orange because it's this big. You know, you can't fit your hand around it. And sometimes I ask myself, I eat one of these oranges every day. Would I prefer to never eat an orange again or never eat refined sugar again? Never eat chocolate again? Never eat ice cream again? Which would I choose? Now, I'm not saying that I'm totally against refined sugar. I love an ice cream. I love a donut. I love a bar of chocolate and so on. And so do you. But you know what? If I had to choose which one to ditch, refined sugar, man-made processed foods like sugar or an orange, I'd choose to keep the orange every time. 
Do you know, when you eat the, the man-made processed things that, that, in a sense, we have created, we have cultivated, as it were, when, when we eat them, you, you taste it, and it tastes wonderful. It tastes really nice, sweet, and fresh, and tasty. But the next time, you need a little bit more of it to get the same hit. And the next time, you need a little bit more of it to get the same. And the taste of it, it, it dulls over time. And not only does it dull its own taste, but it dulls your taste towards other foods. Do you know, when you eat an orange... You can have one every day for six months, and every day it can taste wonderful and leave you gasping for tomorrow's lunchtime. It, it's just so juicy and so fresh and so tasty. Now, for me, it's oranges. I, I just love oranges. But for you, it might be a mango. You know people speak about mangoes, okay? And think about all these fruits that we have, how tasty they are, how fresh they are, how good they are. This is God's good gift to us to enjoy. And think about how he's designed them, how they're... They're most often just the perfect portion size, how they're very conveniently packaged for us. You know, Ray Comfort, has a, a the American evangelist, has a, a little uh, skit that he, he talks about a banana. He says, pick up a banana and it's a, it's a real problem for the atheist. It, take a banana, it's, uh, it's non-slip grip uh, packaging, so it's not going to fall out of your hand. Okay? And uh, it's nice and protected, you don't need to put it in any sort of box or plastic wrapper to get it around to your lunch with you. And it's got a little tab just at the top so you can open it nice and easily, just like a can of Coke has. And it's even got a best before date on it. You know, if it's green, it's not ready yet. If it's yellow, it's just right. And if it's black, you've missed it. Okay. And it curves nicely towards your mouth so you can see what's going on as well as getting it in your mouth, you know, without getting it all over yourself. I, I don't think necessarily a, an argument like that is proof of God's design in the world. Uh, you know, it, to make an argument, someone would just come back and say, well, what was he doing with the apple then? You know, that's none of those things. But at least it's a reminder, an indicator to us that yes, God's gift to us, God, the gifts of food, the gifts of sustenance, his, his provision towards us are not basic. They're not mere sustenance. They're full of goodness. Because he himself is good. And because he cares for you. He doesn't just want you to exist. He wants you to thrive. And enjoy all the good gifts that he shares with you. I need to pick up the pace. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nest, the stork has it home, is home in the pine trees, the high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the cornies. We read this morning a passage from Luke where Jesus tells his followers not to worry about food and about clothing. Because God will provide. If he provides for the animals, won't he also provide for you? And I think that's basically the same as what's going on here. Doesn't God provide well for the animals? What is the most majestic place that you could live? The What is the most secure place that you could live? You know, the high mountains, the, the tops of the Alps. Imagine having your home at the top of Mont Blanc. That's where the mountain goats live. The mountain goats God has provided such a place for their home. Such a defense for the corny or the, the rock badger, uh, depending on your footnote. A defenseless animal. And yet he lives in this fortress of the crags of the mountain. God provides for him. You know when you go into Bradgate Park, uh, the Newtown Linford entrance, some of those really big tall pine trees uh, near the river, just by the open section, they're cedars of Lebanon. The wood of those cedars was some of the most prized wood of all of all the types of wood you can get in Bible times. And Solomon's palace was was panelled in cedar. 
And it's got this great scent that not only smells beautiful, but also keeps out moths. And so you know your wardrobe is, you're not going to get moths in your wardrobe. Those cedars, the tops of those cedars is where the birds make their nest. Those cedars have stood for perhaps hundreds of years, never once fallen over, and the birds have their nests up there. You know, Bradgate Hall, in the middle of Bradgate Park, as beautiful as it must once have been, with all its uh, marble flooring and uh, and beautiful kitchens and beautiful uh, decoration and so on, lasted 200 years. You know, there's oak trees in Bradgate Park that have lasted 700 years. God provides a good, safe place for his animals to live. Will he not also provide for you with overabundant measures of goodness? Verse 19, the moon marks off the seasons. The sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor, until evening. Have you ever wondered why we sleep? Doesn't it strike you as odd that every night, every person in Loughborough, you could say, in the world, you could say, every person within reason, I suppose. I know some people do night shifts and so on, and some people have insomnia and whatever. But you get the idea. Every night, every person stops what they're doing gets in bed to sleep. Not just every person, every animal does the same. Every plant does the same. Why do we sleep? Why has God designed creation so that we need sleep in order to function properly? I think it's just a a little thorn in our side saying, you're not God. You're not in control. You can't keep going. I never sleep, but you need to. And if even you miss your sleep for eight hours, just eight hours delay of your daily sleep, you're going to feel terrible. Can you imagine trying to do two days in a row without your sleep? Can you imagine trying to work all the way through the night without your sleep? You'll feel dreadful. I think it's God saying you need it. And sleep, although it's a goad in that way, I think, it's also a gift. There are many who need their sleep as a as a relief from the pressures and the stress and the grief of the the world in which they live. And God grants sleep. The Psalms speak of that at times. God gives sleep to his people. And yet also it's a gift in the created world. Because, yes, most animals sleep at night, but there are some animals who don't. And it seems like God is using the night time to provide for some animals while keeping humans safe. So the lion goes out at night and he hunts his prey It'd be a poor thing if the lion was out hunting for his prey while the worker was in the field trying to sow his crops. And so God separates the two. And he sends you to sleep in in the nighttime. And he sends the lion to sleep in the daytime so that you can both live in the way that you've been designed to. Sleep is a reminder of our weakness in in the face of God's greatness. And it's a provision of God for us. Verse 24. How many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea. Oh, we've not even mentioned the sea. Don't you know the sea is, is it, is it full or is it empty? You know, if you throw your rod in, you catch a fish nearly every time. There are more animals in the sea than we even have been able to count or understand. And yet, you dip your face in the water and you can see nothing. It is both teeming with life and it is so spacious that it is empty. 
This is all part of God's creation. There's the sea that we've hardly even mentioned. That's where the Leviathan goes. Again, the Leviathan has a, a symbolic uh, reference in Scripture. Uh, in Job especially, the Leviathan seems to be an image of Satan, uh, the one who seeks to wrestle and thrash against uh, the, the work and, and the control of God. The Leviathan is basically just a big sea creature. I picture a dinosaur, uh, you know, one of them with the, bi- the big flippers and the long tail and the long neck when I think of the Leviathan. And yet the Leviathan was put there by God to frolic. Even he has his boundaries set and limited by the God who is in control of all things. Even Satan, who only seeks to thrash and destroy the world that God has created, has been limited by his very nature. Because he is not God. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the run of creation like God does, who has, who has made the heavens his tent. Verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Now he's coming to the summary of his meditation. Um, all that I have, though yes, at times it's cultivated by my own work, all that I have is given to me from the hand of God. God opens his hand and I am satisfied with good things. Verse 29, when he hides his face, we are terrified. Not everything in this world is rosy and good. And at times it does seem like God turns his face away. And terror falls on us. And terror falls on his creation. And amid all the beauty and all the joy and all the goodness, there are still moments of darkness. Death eventually brings it all to naught. It doesn't eliminate us, but it returns us to the dust from which we were made. Again, a reminder that you are not God. You are not like him. What would God return to if he was ever killed? Of course, he can't be killed. He's not matter, he's not material. When you are killed, you return to that which, from which you were taken. You return to dust. And yet, although death seems to have control uh, at times, and does seem to, to, to bring a spanner in the works, as it were, yet, verse 30, when you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Verse 30 is a real note of hope at the end of this psalm. The Spirit of God is sent to renew the face of the earth. Not only to sustain the face of the earth, but to renew the face of the earth. You don't get the full theology here, but there is a hint at what the rest of Scripture speaks of. That God is not going to abandon this world that he has made. Yes, he has set it on its foundations. Yes, it will endure. And yes, there will be a time when it will, in a sense be destroyed. But different parts of Scripture speak about that destruction in different ways. Sometimes it's spoken of as though ultimate, as though it all gets burned up in the fire and disappears. But at other times, like here, it's spoken of as a renewal. God is not going to abandon creation. The plan of your salvation is not that you are whisked away to some other spiritual, non-physical place. The physical world is not a bad thing to be avoided or hated. It is part of what God is redeeming in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it will need to be renewed. And it can be renewed by the work of the Spirit. Where is the Spirit now? Where has he begun that work of renewal? Here. This evening. You. 
Plural. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where he has begun that work of renewal. And so for all those who are in Christ, you are receiving this renewal work even now. He has begun to make you afresh. You have begun to receive the life of God. Verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Do you know, if a, if a secular atheist was writing a song about the beauty of the world or the goodness of the world, how would he end a psalm like that? He would end it with along the lines of, um, he would end it along the lines of, may the glory of man endure forever. May we rejoice in our works. And yet the psalmist recognizes it's not, it's not our goodness that makes this world a good place to be. It's not our generosity or our love or our creativity. It's God's goodness that we enjoy. May he rejoice in his works. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. May my meditation be pleasing as I rejoice in the Lord. And his prayer has just been that God would rejoice in his creation. You see the way the two reflect one another? That fits with what happened in in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then by the end of the chapter, you've got God creating man in his own image to care for and rule over this world that he has created. And in a similar way, the psalmist prays for God to rejoice in his creation. And he says, as God rejoices in the world, in his people, in all that he has made, I am going to rejoice in him. And may that be pleasing to him. You were designed not just to enjoy the good gifts God gives. You were designed to enjoy God himself. You were designed to enjoy God himself. And through knowing God, you enjoy the good gifts he gives more fully. I will sing to the Lord all my life. Not like a bird sings, because that's how I was designed or programmed to do. That's how I communicate. But sing because I recognize his goodness. And I want to praise him for it. Sing because there is content to my songs, not just a tune. Sing because I want to reflect his goodness back to him and thank him for it and give him praise for it. Sing because he has started his work of renewal in me. And I look forward to its day of completion when Jesus Christ comes to take all that rightly belongs to him. Let's end our worship service with an opportunity to praise the Lord, O my soul.